part two of Dan on Your Side. In part one, you heard Dan Casey's official bio. So here's the unofficial version in Dan's own words. First, suspended from school in kindergarten for getting bold with the principal. I was in the right, though. I had not done what that bastard accused me of, and I didn't mind telling him he was wrong. I'm still pissed off about this one. Second school suspension was in sixth grade. That was a prank. I and a friend poisoned a rare plant another student had brought in for show and tell. And we got caught. Alas, I lost a friend over that because his parents sent him away to boarding school because they thought I was a bad influence. I lit my first and thankfully only brush fire that year too. Other jobs, activities. High school and college thespian. Played the rear end of the dancing cow in the Annapolis Summer Garden Theater production of Gypsy. Amateur chemist. My high school principal in Maryland, on the last day of my senior year, threatened to expel me while promising to make sure I would not graduate or get a diploma. It was another prank. Me and some friends smuggled a red, white, and blue painted and stolen pig into the high school cafeteria to celebrate the graduation class of 1976. The threat was a bluff. Kicked out of the University of Maryland in 1980 for a, quote, quality point deficiency, unquote, after flunking all but one class my senior year. They let me back in a few years later, and I managed to earn a bachelor's in English in 1984. At that point, I decided not to go to law school. I've never been arrested for anything, although there were a handful of close calls. Considering the circumstances of my early 20s, I feel quite proud of that. Almost got arrested, felonies, on the way to my wedding in 1986. That was the closest call ever. Voted most likely to die by 30 in my college friend group. Today, some of those voters are dead. Rode my bicycle from Seattle to New York in the summer of 83. In 1987, I swam 4.4 miles across the Chesapeake Bay in 60-degree water for a story. And there you have it. I like this version of Dan's bio. Now let's hear the rest of Dan's story, starting with Bernie Ward's murder conviction. Bernie Ward was convicted in the, I think it was like November 1989 murder of a guy named Eddie Brewer. Uh, The murder occurred in an abandoned house that was only about a quarter mile from the 7-Eleven store where Charles Erdwin was murdered. I mean, it was, yeah. (laughs) Wow. um, Eddie Brewer had driven there in a white Camaro. That night, around midnight, the Camaro was found burning outside the house. But it was like it was burning in a parking lot of a little business park that adjoined the land that led up to the, this abandoned house. So nobody searched the house that night. And about a month later, when his body started stinking really good, um, someone did, the police did, and they found he'd been bludgeoned and stabbed to death in the basement of this place. So then the question was, you know, who did this? And some informant told the Anne Arundel County police that a guy named Bernie Ward had been with Eddie Brewer that night. And uh, I saw, you know, a police report in which 
this guy described Eddie Brewer and Bernie Ward meeting in a bar in Baltimore and leaving it together. And the next thing anybody knows is it's a month later and Eddie Brewer's body is found in the basement of this house a month after his car had been set on fire outside it. At that time, Bernie Ward was in Tallahassee, Florida. Now, you got you to remember this, that the murder occurred around midnight on November 15th, heading into November 16th of 1989. Bernie Ward had left Maryland driving to Tallahassee, Florida on like November 13th or 14th. He had left town before Eddie Brewer was murdered. And then it became a question of how do you document that he drove down I-95 to Tallahassee? And how do you document that he was in this trailer park outside of Tallahassee when the murder occurred in Maryland? And I was able to do that. The guy who visited me in the newsroom and put me on this case, his name was Jim Scott. Jim Scott was a friend of Bernie's. Jim had bought the broken down old van that Bernie was going to be driving down to Florida for him. But Jim didn't trust the van to make it all the way. So Jim had this really bright idea that he would take it to a Catholic church and get a priest to bless it (laughs) just before Bernie headed south. And the priest remembered this quite well because it's the first time anyone had ever asked him to bless a van. Well, you know, that's, I would think that's just standard operating procedure. (laughs) Now, I wasn't asking him the question until some years after the murder occurred, a few years. So he didn't have a great recollection as to the date, but he did remember that he had to hurry up and bless the van because he had a wedding rehearsal that afternoon. And he was able to go back and, find his calendar for that wedding rehearsal. And that was like the day before the murder occurred in Maryland. The other way that we could document Bernie heading South was that Jim had insisted that Bernie call him like every 300 miles from a payphone along I-95 and Bernie had no money. So he made those calls collect. Jim had not thought to get the phone records. And I'm like, you know, Holy smokes, Jim. (laughs) you got to get those phone records. And it took him a while, but he did. And sure enough, there's collect calls, you know, that last for 10, 15 minutes. You know, you could plot them on a map. It was like every six hours, Bernie was calling Jim. After Bernie got to Tallahassee, there was a court record that we could use to establish his presence there only hours after the murder. And the court record was really interesting. Bernie was going to Tallahassee to join his fiancee. It was a woman named Karen. Karen was pregnant with his child. Karen had two other children, two little girls, by two different men. And apparently she was a terrible mother because her mother had custody of those two little girls. Her parents lived next door in the trailer next door in the trailer park outside of Tallahassee. So Bernie moved in with Karen at her trailer. Karen and her mother got in a fight on November 16th, 1989. And so at around 930 in the morning, Karen 
asked Bernie to drive her to the Leon County Circuit Courthouse where she was going to fill out a petition for change of custody to take revenge on her mother for whatever argument Karen had had with her. Karen, Karen was going to get her girls back and show her mother, you know, who was, who was the boss. Well, Karen couldn't read or write. Bernie could. Yeah. So Bernie had to fill out the petition of change of custody for her. However, he wasn't the father of either oh, of the kids. Jesus. So he couldn't sign the document. Karen signed it with an X. No kidding. And it took us. I was working at that point with an with an attorney who was representing this young, hungry attorney named Fred Heyman, who is still practicing in Baltimore. And he's an awesome lawyer. Um, but uh, Fred was able to get a, a copy of that court document. You know, it was a juvenile and domestic relations court. So unlike every other record in Florida, it's harder to get than normal. But Fred was able to do it. And once Fred got it, I called up uh, a, a guy I knew in the FBI and asked him for the name of a couple of ex-FBI documented examiners who, you know, could match handwriting. And so he gave me the names of two. I called them, spoke to both of them. One of them agreed to do it for free and issue a full report. The other said, I'm not going to write a full report on this, but I will look at the exemplars that you give me, which is a copy of the court document and then a raft of letters that Bernie had sent me from prison in his own handwriting. And both of the document examiners came back and said, without a doubt, it's his handwriting, which which he had distinctive handwriting. So that was pretty obvious. But I wanted to I wanted an expert to judgment on that. Once we had the phone records and the this handwriting sample samples that had been yeah. compared and found to be Bernie's, we hired a polygrapher and he was the guy who taught the Anne Arundel County police polygraph examiners, how to do it. He operated the school in Maryland. His name was Billy Martin. I think uh, his name was Billy. And so we hired Billy to go to prison where Bernie was. And because Bernie was serving a life sentence, we hired these document examiners to go to the prison. I gave Billy the whole police report. Billy told me later that after reading that police report, I did not see that there was a snowball's chance in hell that he would test truthful when he denied the murder. But Bernie surprised him and Bernie showed no deception whatsoever on the polygraph. And Billy called me and said, I believe he's innocent. And uh, so then we published a story, a big, a big story that kind of took everybody through events from the beginning. And um, that did not spring Bernie from prison. But Fred Heyman used the evidence that I developed to win him a new trial based on a claim of incompetency of his original attorney, who was very incompetent. It took a judge 14 or 16 months to rule on Fred's motion. But when he ruled, the judge basically called it the greatest travesty of justice that had ever happened in a courtroom. And he overturned the murder conviction. The prosecution, meanwhile, said, well, we're going to retry him. And Fred represented Bernie wow. in the retrial, which lasted a week. And Bernie was acquitted by a jury of his peers, and he was released. Wow. What a story. What great two stories. And so how does it feel to affect two people's lives? I mean, to, literally to set men free. Well, that feels good. 
that part feels good. But but you know, Andy, I can't watch any show on TV today that's about an innocent man. <laughs> it gets me way too anxious and wound up. There are a lot of them out there. Experienced criminal defense attorneys will tell you that one half of 1% of their clients are factually innocent of the crime that they're in prison for. And that translates into one out of 200 inmates. And now I don't know how many there are in the United States, but it's probably a a lot. If it's 2 million, then it's one out of two, 200 of in in a population of 2 million. There's a lot of innocent people. And we know it now because of DNA and all the, the bad convictions that happened in rapes and murders sometimes 30 or 35 years ago that end up getting overturned when new evidence is found. So anyway, it feels good knowing that, you know, I did the right and good thing there, but it was very difficult to do it at the time because the police were mocking me. The managing editor of the newspaper, this guy named Tom used to play racquetball with detectives all the time. And they would tell Tom that I was just, crazy. Oh, and I'm I sure. Had- you probably weren't getting a lot of backup from your own folks. <laughs> After the Gordy Marsh case, I got pulled off the county police beat. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but you know what? That's the thing. You probably saved these guys' lives. I mean, well, you did. They could have died in prison, could have gotten killed in prison, but you saved their lives. And that has to make you feel pretty good. I It would make me feel it does, good. It does, Andy, but I get I get really angry about the injustices. I mean, oh, I know. Well, and, and part of that, weapon. yeah, and part of that is, is that the two guys that you did save, they weren't angels. Bernie wasn't an angel, but he wasn't as bad a criminal as Gordy was. I think Bernie had turned some tricks as like a hustler with men on the streets of Baltimore. So he had a record for that. He also had contracted HIV before he went to prison. So he died, I don't know how many years after he got out, but he ended up dying of uh, of AIDS. They they weren't angels, but I mean they didn't deserve to go to prison for what they were for what they were accused of. From there, how did you get to Roanoke? So Bernie Ward got out of prison in 1994, and just after that happened, I got a job at the Roanoke Times covering Roanoke City mm-hmm. Hall. I had a colleague from Annapolis a woman named Laura Williamson, who had worked there and then had moved to Roanoke. And they had an opening for the city hall reporter in Roanoke. And she called me up and she goes, you'd be perfect for this. And I didn't know it at the time, but at that time, the Roanoke Times was paying like a $300 bonus. If you referred someone for a job and they ended up getting hired, you could put 300 bucks in your pocket. And and Laura did that. (laughs) Good for her. (laughs) Yeah, good for her. So I came down here for an interview. Uh, well, at first I sent him a letter and a resume and some clips, and then I uh, they invited me down for an interview, and you know it was like a long weekend, and I went back to Annapolis, and I'm like, oh my God, Donna, you won't believe what we could afford in terms of houses in Roanoke on a reporter salary. You could not do that. You we couldn't afford a house in Annapolis. Oh no, not in not in that, those days. God no. Yeah, but it was but it was very affordable in Roanoke yeah. because. Uh, you could pick up a house for $80,000. <laughs> you could pick it up for less than that. You can pick up a nice house for 80000 Yeah. <laughs> 1994. Sure. So, that's- so you got to Roanoke and you didn't become a columnist for the Roanoke Times until after you were there for a while. Tell me how that transition worked. 
I've worked at the Roanoke Times since 1994, so we're 27 years. And um, what I can tell you is that they don't typically hire in columnists from other places. All the columnists that have been at the Roanoke Times, maybe with one exception, had been reporters and knew the area and the people in the area really well. And that was a a benefit to them as in being a columnist, too. So I was a City Hall reporter for three years. Then I was a night metro editor for about a year. I reported to the head of the copy desk, who was the news editor. And when he left for another job in the Midwest, I got his job. So I was the news editor. Then I took a job in the circulation department, believe it or not. I was the single copy manager for a couple years. Then I went back to news. I was an editor working directly with reporters. I was what they call a metro editor. And so I was the kind of like the supervisor and the coach for the reporters who were out beating the bushes, getting the stories. Carol Tarrant, who was the editor of the Roanoke Times at the time, came to me and said, you know, you wrote in a review one year that you know, you think you might like to be a columnist. You still feel that way? And I said, yeah. And she's like, okay, take the next two days off and write me three columns. And if I like them, you can be the columnist. <laughs> and so I did. Easy audition. I wrote three columns and she liked them. And so I got the job. So as a columnist, tackle a lot of different subjects. And a lot of it is columns that focus on what I would call, hey, if you can't find the help you need, reach out to Dan. In the newsroom, they call those Dan on your side columns. Dan on your side, yeah. But then what caught my attention and kind of how you and I met was you also tackle politics and you make some <laughs> some conservative readers rather apoplectic. You know, you know what the funny thing is, is, is I, I write three columns a week. And so when when you're on a schedule like that and if you care about what you're doing, you want to you want to do a good job. You always need to be looking forward. You, you can't afford not to be looking forward in terms of what the next two or three columns are. And the, the corollary to that is that you can't remember the stuff you've written. <laughs> because all your attention has to go on the, you know, what's coming. Sure. So, so I will, people will mention things that I wrote, you know, and I'll be like, wow, did I really write that? And then I'll go look it up and I'll say, oh yeah, I did. And then I'll read it and I'll say, that was wow. pretty good. That, that was, was pretty good. That's that's better than I'm writing now. You know, what, what's happening to me and stuff like that. Yeah. What's the most outlandish subject you've ever written about? I got an email from a professor at Radford University. The guy was in his 70s. I think he was an English professor, and he'd had a stroke. And he was flown by helicopter to Carillion Roanoke Memorial Hospital in Roanoke. And then he got the bill and the bill was like $30,000 for this 60 mile helicopter ride. And his insurance wouldn't pay any of it because his, his insurance provider did not have a, a provider agreement with the company that owned and operated the helicopters. Like, just like you would have, need a in network doctor, you know, mm-hmm. if you get an operation and, if you want to read more about that, Andy, read tomorrow's column. That's <laughs> a pretty good story <laughs> that's, there. But um, how timely! But so, um, 
I found out that Carillion had changed helicopter companies. There, there are only a few companies in the country that operate these medevac helicopters. One is called um, Air Transport, I think, and the other one's called Medical Helicopters or something like that. And there are some others, but these were the two involved in this case. They had this one helicopter company, the, the old one, would accept reimbursements from Anthem and other insurers for the flights at the level the insurer was willing to pay, which was a hell of a lot less than $35,000. And then they went to this new company, and part of the Carillion's agreement with the new company is that the new company would ink an agreement with Anthem, which is the dominant insurance provider in this region, or at least it was at the time. The company never inked an agreement with Anthem, and that got by Carillion. And so I don't think Carillion knew that their their own patients, their trauma patients were getting hosed for these helicopters. God. But after that column appeared, I started getting phone calls and emails like you would not believe. These Me Too people out yeah. there. I got flown there. I got a bill for 28000 I got flown there. I got a bill for 25000 And they're telling me these stories about how they're dickering with the company, which was based in Texas. You know, and the people are letting them pay like it was a, more, a 30-year mortgage. It says, Jesus you know, they're paying it off Thirty years. Good lord! Holy shit! And so it was one column after another, and with every new column about this new person and this new outrage, I learned a little bit more about what had happened in the background to create this situation. Ultimately, Carillion forced the helicopter company to ink an agreement with Anthem, and everyone got their money back except for maybe whatever the in-network price would have been for the helicopter ride. Or, or debts were canceled. And, and I believe it was millions of dollars. It was a big deal around here. So I, I won, like, the top award at the Virginia Press Association that year. Well, as, as well you should. Okay. And, and I will leave my listeners with this final piece, is that I don't care where you're from. You need to read Dan's columns because – he gets people out of prison. He <laughs> he solves problems. And honest to God, Dan, you are the perfect example of the power of journalism. I mean, this is what journalism does and what you've done for Roanoke and how you have changed lives. Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, read Dan's columns. I don't care where you are, but read Dan's columns and support local journalism. They're online at Roanoke.com. That's it. You are uh, a hell of a friend, and I am so glad that I had you on the program. Well, thanks, Andy. It was a pleasure, as always. You know, your mind and my mind think an awful lot alike. Uh, we're in the same that, group. That scares me. Uh, uh, well, I'm not <laughs> in the same group with most people. <laughs> I feel like I'm in the group with you. Yes, I think we are. Great minds thinking in the same gutter or something like that. But <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Take care. It's been fun. Thanks, Andy. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Marianne Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. 
I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening.